This is the Leadership Institute School Board Campaign Training Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. This year, the Leadership Institute launched this new program for conservatives interested in running for school board or being involved in school board campaigns. Our podcast features faculty members from the new school board campaign training and other expert guests discussing how to design, wage, and win successful school board campaigns. You can learn more and take the program online at leadershipinstitute.org slash school board. Welcome to Learn Right, the school board campaign training podcast brought to you by the Leadership Institute. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. I'm joined this week by Rick Tyler, our new director of core schools for the Leadership Institute. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Ron. It's great to be here. This podcast, uh, for those of you who are new to it, uh, is provided as a service to those uh, people out there, those conservatives who are interested in uh, running for school board or helping fellow conservatives who are running for school board this year, next year, or down the road, or just conservatives who want to be more effective uh, in improving the quality of uh, education in their own uh, in their own community. Uh, this is episode 12, and today we're going to focus on this question of what is the most important question uh, in politics. Uh, this episode is being recorded in April 2022. We have uh, conservatives around the country who will be running for school board, active in school board campaigns uh, later on this year, some earlier in the year, others later on in, uh, in the year. But there's no question that uh, there's been a heightened interest in conservatives around the country in serving on school boards and in taking an interest in the quality of uh, education in their local community. A lot of that has been driven by uh, the response to COVID. You had a lot of uh, parents who were at home, not able to uh, not able to go into the office because of lockdowns and the like. Uh, and, uh, and they got uh, to see uh, what uh, the quality of education their kids are getting because that was being brought to them right into their home as opposed to only taking place in the classroom. Uh, and, uh, and there's certainly that heightened sense of interest. So in that context, Leadership Institute has provided the school board campaign training program online, which can be accessed through leadershipinstitute.org uh, slash uh, training or leadershipinstitute.org slash school board. Uh, and uh, we have a number of different episodes available there. But we're going to talk about one of the concepts that are most, most important for people who are running for office at any level, but especially uh, for school board. And that is, what's that most important question uh, in politics. And for me to get to that, and I'm going to bring Rick in in a couple of minutes, but first let me set the table here for what is the most important question in politics. Well, like much of what we teach at Leadership Institute, really learning how to wage an effective campaign involves unlearning some of the things that we might learn uh, or might be trained to do by social media and the like. And social media, which is very personality driven, uh, the most important question in social media might be who? Uh, but that's not the most important question when it comes to running for office. So let's let's talk about that. But to set the table, I want to start with a story. And uh, my parents are not uh, from the United States. My parents were born uh, in Germany. My father was born in 1934. My mother was born in 1941. They came to America as in, as immigrants. They didn't speak any English when they got here. And my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, in 1936, uh, he bought a bicycle. And that is how he got around uh, in snow or in rain or, uh, you know, in cold or heat or whatever. That My grandfather got around on a bicycle his entire life until he died uh, at, age, uh, at age 91. And he was born in 1910. My father was born in 1934, so 24 years later. And uh, when he came to America, he bought a 1968 Volkswagen Beetle. 
And uh, that might be a car that's older than many of the people listening to this podcast. But uh, the 1968 Volkswagen Beetle, uh, by modern standards, uh, is not exactly a, a performance car. In fact, uh, the heat never performed in that car. And I remember you know, being driven around by my father uh, in that car and was always cold uh, in the winter growing up in New York. Uh, and if you compare the car that my father drove to what I drive, uh, with a modern navigation system and heated seats and, uh, and airbags and uh, lane change assist and so on. If you look back, if I look back and compare how I get around to how my father got around and how my grandfather got around, it really is a dramatic difference. I mean, you go from my grandfather who got around on a bicycle uh, versus uh, me driving around in a, you know, in a modern car it's a really dramatic difference. And if you take a look at life expectancy as another comparison, someone who was born in 1910 had a life expectancy of just 47 years. And as someone who's 51, I'm very thankful that that, uh, that number has changed. Uh, and by comparison, I was born in 1970, and my life expectancy is 71 years. That's a dramatic difference. And at no point in all of human history have we seen such a dramatic change in life expectancy. And also we've seen other changes, very dramatic. At no point in human history have we seen the type of improvements that we've seen in quality of life, in life expectancy, calories produced per person on the planet, people lifted out of poverty, uh, and the like. And that compares to, you know, if you lived in 900 AD or 1000, you know, your 1000 AD, your quality of life was probably not all that different. So it kind of begs the question, what is it that makes it possible for one generation to live better than the last? Because that's a fundamental question to all of us, because we all want our children, our grandchildren to live better uh, than we did. And the answer to that uh, had really has uh, two parts. The first of it uh, is, uh, um, is education. And Education is the mechanism by which we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Without good education, we're just repeating the same mistakes of the past. We're not passing knowledge and information on to the next generation. But education alone doesn't do it. If you took a look at the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, you know, they were churning out engineers like it was nobody's business. But the second part of that is opportunity. And opportunity is what allows those better techniques that we develop to make it to the marketplace, to be shared with more people, to actually make a difference in people's lives. And when you get those two things and combine them together, education and opportunity, it leads to innovation. And that innovation is what really gives people better tools. We're no smarter today uh, than, uh, than people were 50 years ago or 5,000 years ago. There's no evidence that people have gotten more intelligent. Uh, but we do have better tools than those people uh, who came before us. And it's because of that innovation that gives us that better, those better tools that allows us to take uh, the talents that we have and extend that further and produce all these wonderful changes that we've, that we've seen that has a net result of people living longer and living better uh, than those people uh, who came before us. Um, one of my favorite uh, tools to use when I teach here at Leadership Institute is um, when I give this presentation is I put up on the screen a newspaper ad from Radio Shack. Uh, for those of you who can remember Radio Shack, you know, that's the, the place where you'd go in the 1980s 
or in the 70s uh, and uh, you know for a CB radio or a telephone for your house or you have to buy a transistor or whatever and uh, I put up on the screen a full page ad from Radio Shack that shows all these different things that you can buy at a Radio Shack store and personal computer a CB radio tape recorder speakers a camcorder and so on and I took all the items in that full page ad and I added them up together and it would, would have cost you at the time $3,277. And um, in 2021 dollars, that would be about $6,537 to buy everything in that ad. Or you could buy an iPhone SE for $399, which can do every single thing that every device in that Radio Shack ad could do. And you can have that in your pocket. Or put it another way, your smartphone is millions of times more powerful uh, than the guidance computers that helped to put people on the moon uh, in Apollo 11. And that's in everybody's pocket today. So we have much better tools than people who came before us. And if we take a look around the world, uh, our friends at the Heritage Foundation have done a great job ranking every country on Earth uh, according to something called the Index of Economic Freedom. And that is something really worth looking at. Regardless of what office you're running for or what your involvement is in politics, I urge you to take a look at the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom and read through some of that. And what Heritage has done is compared every country on earth and given them a score um, in f uh, that's a, uh, an aggregate of four categories, rule of law, size of government, open markets, and regulatory efficiency ranking every country by are property rights respected? Is corruption a problem? Is the judiciary effective? Is, uh, is government too big? Is the tax burden too high? Is the government physically healthy? Uh, do people have the freedom to trade, to invest? Is there the freedom to start a business, to hire, to fire? Is the, stable, is the currency stable? And if you take all of those factors and you roll them in together, what you find is that those countries that rank higher in the index of economic freedom. It, their people are more prosperous uh, than those countries uh, that are at the bottom of the scale, which were all the usual suspects, you know, North Korea and Venezuela, uh, you know, and so on. And people in those countries are not impoverished because they're less talented. Uh, they're not impoverished because they don't work hard. They're impoverished because they have bad government uh, that doesn't provide for that combination of education and opportunity uh, that we have uh, in the United States and in Canada and Western Europe and, uh, and the like. So we know the ideas that allow people to prosper. Uh, that's clear. Good schools, property rights, low and fair taxes, trade, sound money, effective courts, the freedom to work, save, and invest, the freedom to create a business, sound government, freedom from corruption. But all of those ideas which allow people to prosper, they lack one thing, and that is they can't implement themselves. They require champions. They require people in elected office who will take those ideas and put them into action, not to improve necessarily their own lives, but to improve the lives of other people. And that brings us to the most important question uh, in politics. And the most important question in politics, in my experience of 34 years in the public policy arena, is it's not who, and it's not what, but the most important question in politics is why. Why are you running for office? Why are you supporting this candidate? Why are your ideas better? Why would your ideas 
lead to better schools or give kids a better opportunity uh, in life? Why should I support you? Why are your ideas better than someone else's ideas? Uh, Steve Sutton, our vice president, our senior vice president here at Leadership Institute, describes this as the because clause. And it's essential for candidates for office to be able to articulate their why. And that why, that answer, has to be compelling to people not outside of yourself, outside of your family, and outside of those people who are immediately around you. But that becomes the most important question in a campaign is why. And candidates need to be able to think that through. I want to bring Rick Tyler in, Rick, for part of this uh, conversation. You've been involved in campaigns at every level, uh, on the federal level, nationally, presidential campaigns, down to local campaigns. Give me a little bit of your insight as to why this, this question of why is so important for school board candidates to really um, nail down as they are preparing to run for office. Well, it's a, thank you. Um, I think it is really important. The why is the most absolutely the most important question because people act on a rationale. And in the political world, they're generally acting. See, the way our system is set up, we have a constitutional republic. And we basically say to our politicians, you know, go to Washington or, or, or go to the state capitol or go to the school board uh, and do your job and, and check in from time to time. But, you know, they don't, most Americans don't really want to hear on, from their politicians on a daily basis. Now, those of us who watch cable news every day or, or tune into it, we do want to hear from our politicians, but for the vast majority of Americans, they don't. And when they suddenly are forced to pay attention to what politicians are doing, I always say that someone's going to get fired because what they're, what they're really saying is you're not doing your job and we want something to change. So if you're, if you're running uh, for office and you're trying to defeat an incumbent or an entrenched incumbent or establishment, um, you have to identify with the voters because the voters are paying attention and and they are like no other time before. Um, And they want to have answered the question, if I vote for you, what do I get? What, what, what meaningful thing is going to happen? They know what they don't like. So in, for instance, in, in, in school boards, people have become acutely aware as you, greatly pointed out, Ron, that um, the COVID crisis brought parents really into the child's classroom almost on a daily basis. They had to be uh, involved in it, and they saw it was frustrating for them on many levels because many parents are working, and it's, and it's difficult, and they had technological challenges. But then there was also uh, the content. So it was, it was a question of how is the school system being managed? Why, why can't my kids go back to school? Is it safe or is it not safe? And then it was a question of the content and are they really learning? And parents became very frustrated and they realized, well, you know, who is in charge of all this? And it turns out that, you know, the administration is in charge of it, but in charge of them are, are school board members and they're elected if they're elected. Most school board races are nonpartisan, so it's not a Democrat race or a, a Republican race. And I think the Leadership Institute's response has been a market response. So many people have suddenly wanted to become involved, which is a good thing, and and run for school board, but they needed the tools uh, to do that. So, you know, our organization here quickly put together a program. Not that it was difficult because we are teaching the same thing, but we now have, have a new market. See, the school board was one of the, actually one of the most difficult, um, in terms of recruitment, people are not, 
you know, you hear about people running for Congress all the time, for president, of course, governor, U.S. senator. Uh, but sometimes we don't get a lot of people volunteering to run for school board. And now all of a sudden they are. And it's become very competitive as hundreds of parents and concerned citizens have wanted to run. But if you can't communicate to the voter what they get or what's going to change uh, because of your ideas, then they really are unlikely to vote for you. And, and people are going to be paying attention to that. So it really is the it is the why question. It isn't who you are, uh, your status in the community, your name ID in that case. It is if I vote for you, will my child's education get better? And if you don't have a sound answer to that, it's going to be tough people, for people to make the change. Yeah, I think that makes clear as to um, you know if someone simply gets up and makes an effect uh, the argument, uh, I'm really angry. You should vote for me. Uh, that's not really a compelling message because it doesn't connect at all. Okay, well, you're the angry guy or the angry gal. Okay, but uh, that is not connected to, well, then how will that produce an improvement in the schools in our community? Or or how does that positively affect people other than yourself, other than being a simple exercise of the fact that you're upset about something? Uh, the, uh, you know, I'm upset or I'm animated or I'm angry. That's not really a compelling message in politics, is it? Not in the long term. So we do have election cycles where voters get very angry. And as I say, when voters are angry, they're paying attention. And when they're paying attention, somebody's going to get fired, meaning the incumbents are generally replaced. But if you replace them with people who are just angry and don't have, really have a vision, that's going to be a short-term solution and it won't be long-lived. Take, for instance, the school board uh, in San Francisco. Now, Nobody could make the case that it was a, a group of Republicans or conservatives who wiped out the, the San Francisco school board. Well, they didn't wipe it out. There were three members eligible to be recalled, and they were all recalled with 70-plus percent of the vote. And it was, in fact, liberals who, who had recalled them uh, because they felt like they were paying too much attention to things that weren't important to the parents. So, for instance, they were really – they had this program where they were systematically – you know, renaming schools because, you know, the school name might have offended someone. Now, one of the schools was named George Washington. Another was named Abraham Lincoln. And then, and then so, I, you know, parents were like, well, why are we spending so much time on this? Um, and we want to be spending more time on, on the content of what our children are learning. So they got frustrated and they, and they, and they threw them all out. But in fact, in San Francisco, they were probably more likely to replace them with more liberal school board members. And as a conservative, I don't really think that's going to get the San Francisco school board uh, very far. And so it, the, um, well, the idea is that, is that while people are paying attention, think about why you're running and think about long-term systematic change to our education system. And from a conservative perspective, a conservative perspective, the philosophy of conservatism Really, it's, it, I, I put it in two words. It's, it's ordered liberty. And conservatives are, in general, reluctant to adopt change for the sake of change, whereas the progressive part of the, of the Democratic Party seems seemingly always wants to change because change is good. We're just going to change with no evidence, no empirical data, and then they're on to the next change and the next change. I think conservatives are a little more, well, they're conservative in that uh, prove to us that, that what is working doesn't work and what you have is going to empirically show us how this is going to work better. And I think conservatives will easily adopt new ideas and new technologies, but they're not going to change for, this, for the sake of change. And in education, it's really interesting because if you look back 
uh, through the generations, you can see that people uh, in the throughout the 19th century uh, in primary school and grade school had a vastly superior uh, liberal classical education uh, than our students are getting today. We routinely test very low uh, in in the STEM sciences around the world. Um, our children are becoming, I would say, less and less uh, English literate uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, they use a lot of social media and people are not correcting grammar and, se- and sentence structures. We see a lot of errors in, in that way. And so from a conservative perspective, why don't we look at some of the education that has worked, that we know empirically has worked over the years, rather than just trying this and this and this. And then we have to decide, you know, what is education really for? Is, is education the venue for social engineering uh, to make us all better citizens? In, in some respects, yes, uh, but not in the way, the all, all-encompassing way that sometimes uh, the liberal left wants, wants to make the school systems. Um, I think most parents would rather their children be focused on academics in the in the way that uh, how will they get accepted to a a good college, and then we can talk we can do a whole thing on college too. But and then what's the market? What is the actual um, likelihood that that those skills that they gained through their academic years are actually going to land in a good job? Too many graduates today from higher learning institutions actually don't have a lot of marketable skills. Uh, that seems to me an enormous waste of resources. But I think for the most parents who are just trying to get their kids through K through 12, uh, really want to focus, get refocused on academics. I think that means starting with the value, and the value is that every child in America deserves a world-class education. Absolutely. That's, the, that's the way that I articulate yeah. it. Uh, and that, and I firmly believe that that absolutely is true. If you're a child going to school in the United States, then your birthright includes access to a world-class education. And taxpayers are already paying for that. Uh, the United States spends more money per student than any country on earth. We don't get the best results, but we're the, certainly the financial commitment on the part of society and taxpayers is there to pay for world-class education. It's a question of whether or not the local schools are providing that. And to take that a step further, that does not mean that every school district in America is underperforming. There are lots that are underperforming, but blanket statements about education in America don't necessarily translate into what's happening in a local school district. Because you may be in a district where the schools are really, really good. There are lots of public schools that are doing a great job, uh, that uh, that are that are performing well, that are doing the job, that have their eye on the ball, uh, and so if someone, if some conservative decides, well, I'm going to run for school board because the schools in America aren't great, uh, but they're running in a school district where people, where the schools are good and people feel the schools are on the right track, then that message doesn't really correspond. So we start with the values, but then very quickly, a school board candidate has to focus on the actual schools they're seeking to be part of the leadership team for by being on the board, and what is the condition of that education that's being provided, and how can that be improved? So what's interesting is what you say is, because we talk about education as though it's a national issue, and it certainly is not, as every real estate agent can tell you, because a real estate agent is often um, focused on the neighborhoods where schools are better because they're looking uh, for, they're, they're looking to put their, customers who want 
to live in places where their kids can go to better schools because you know we don't really have the choice. When you live in a certain neighborhood, you are probably going to end up going to a certain schools and and the and the quality of the schools in in very close areas uh, ranges dramatically. So I live in Loudoun County, and we have great schools in Loudoun County, but we have some not so great schools in, in Loudoun County, and they are just down the road from each other. Uh, so when you are a, a local school board member, you have to really have an intimate knowledge of all the schools uh, in your district, the primary, the secondary, the uh, elementary uh, schools, and some are good and some are not so good. And as a, from a conservative perspective, how can we learn from the schools that are doing things really well, and how can we adopt those Think not everything's not everything's going to be transferable, but a lot of things are transferable. If 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 one school that's not doing well, but they have to have the incentives to uh, create a world class education, as you say, Ron. And I think parents now are giving them that that incentive. Yeah, certainly COVID has had a dramatic impact on our society in a number of different ways. We're all aware of the discussions that happen about people working remotely, or at least those people who can work remotely. But there's this also this other dimension of by um, kids not being able to physically attend school uh, and getting education through Zoom, which all the indications were, yep, that was a substitute, but not a great substitute. The it results were not, really, yeah. were not really uh, the same as being in the classroom. Uh, and, uh, but that meant that that education that was coming, that was being beamed, uh, or transmitted, uh, you know, from the teacher into everybody's living room or everybody's, uh, you know, kids' room or into the home, and, and that really connected parents to the educational product in a way that, unless you were a parent who was going to sit in the classroom physically, uh, parents really hadn't seen before. No, they hadn't. And education changed. And I want to make a case for so. The quality of the Zoom education was not what it was, but it was also it's also different. And I'll tell you just a little story. When I was when my daughter was younger, and I think she was probably early, maybe early high school. I was probably maybe she was junior high, and she was in her room, and she's supposed to be doing her homework. And I see her on the computer, and I, was, I said, "What are you doing?" And she says, "I'm watching videos." And now, Brianna, no, you're not supposed to be watching videos. You're supposed to be doing your homework. She says, "Daddy, I am doing my homework." I said, "You said you're watching videos." And she was watching a professor on a YouTube explain a particular math problem and equation and how to solve it. And I said, wow. And what's interesting about that is if you don't understand the teacher in class, sometimes it's hard to get them to repeat what they said. But with a professor on YouTube, you can rewind it and you can listen mm -hmm. to it and you can watch it to it until something clicks and you say, aha, I've got it. So we can have all the above. We can use great tools like YouTube and videos uh, and Zoom in many cases. Um, but my daughter's a teacher in the, in the Loudoun County Schools. She's the third grade, and she was teaching remotely, and now she's back in the class. And I can tell you that she's just so grateful to be back in, in the class because the students are thriving uh, in the class with, with their peers and the teacher and the relationships uh, that happen in the classroom. We're on Zoom I think they're getting it, but I'm not really sure because it's very hard to read the body language or, or some students are not going to be uh, forthright through a video camera. You know, I just don't understand this problem where they might come after class and say, you know, Mrs. Moore, I, I don't understand this problem. Do you think you could help me? And so, so you have uh, the, the pluses and the minuses of this, but absolutely the, the parents 
saw firsthand. And, and it's a good thing because, as you point out, there's, if you think about all the issues that we have, there really probably is nothing more important than education. And we have made a huge commitment as a country uh, and states and counties, uh, a huge financial commitment uh, to having schools. And there's certainly enough money in the system. Now, the teachers will say there isn't enough money. But if you look at how education has been doubled and doubled and doubled again, um, and we're getting not as good test results as we had when there was less money in the system, it tells you that money is probably not the problem. Does it take money? Sure, it takes a lot of money to run a good school system. But it probably is focusing, you know, you lose your priorities over time. And we get focused on, on different things about, you know, what education. And conservatives are also very skeptical of when, you, when the state runs a school. And luckily, it is, it, education is centered mostly in the states. Uh, and then, then it's, again, on the county level. But it's really on the county level or the town level in some places where education makes the difference between a quality education and a good education, and that's up that's been up to the school board. So I can't really think of a more important um, elected role where you have a direct impact in the lives of students, students' education and the quality of their lives going forward and, and affecting really their, their future and their earnings potential than, than being a school board member. Yeah, I, I agree as a former school board member myself, the local schools have a powerful impact on the community. Um, it, it, they have a, uh, the most direct impact on those families who have kids in the schools, but they also impact the wider community as well uh, because people want to live in an area with, which has good quality schools. Uh, you know, uh, schools that are not doing well, uh, you know, are, wind up discouraging people from living there if they can. If they, you know, how many people uh, make their decision on where to buy a home based on what school district it's, uh, th- that home is located in? Uh, and so we start with that basic value that every child deserves a world-class education, then we immediately move on to, well, if you're a candidate for the school board, you need to be able to answer that most important question of politics, which is why. Why are you running? Uh, uh, Why should I support you? And the derivative of that is, well, if I support you over over the alternative, how, how is that going to impact me and my community and my family and the like? And that's where that question of why comes in, and that, that really has to be answered. And part of being able to answer that question is thus dependent, taking the next step, on having a good understanding of what the issues are in the local community, or put another way, what are the problems that are getting in the way of providing the best possible quality education? And then how is your candidacy a solution to that problem. And that is not as easy as just being active. That's not as easy as just uh, posting a comment on Facebook or going on Twitter and, you know, raging against, uh, you know, something that someone is upset about. But it takes a higher level of commitment uh, and a necessary level of commitment to understand the district, what's happening in the schools, what is the solution to that, is that solution a credible solution, or is that just pie in the sky? Uh, you know, and there are plenty of solutions that you know that the guardians of the status quo will reject and simply automatically say is not possible. That doesn't mean that every solution is not possible, but solutions have to be credible. They have to be compelling. They have to credibly produce a better result than the status quo. And you can only really arrive at that if a candidate, pardon the pun 
does their homework and understands just what is happening and then how are you the solution to that problem. So in campaign school here at the Leadership Institute, we often speak in terms of problem, solution, benefit. The problem, the candidate has to identify and frame what the problem is. And then the second part is the solution. And then the third part is if your solution prevails, then who is going to benefit and how? Is it the students, the wider community? And then to create that compelling vision in people's minds uh, of what the future can look like uh, versus what it looks like today. And Rick, you've often talked about transformational change, uh, which sounds a little bit abstract, but it really is at the heart. If you're challenging the status quo, then you have to be an advocate for transformational change. Can you walk us through a little bit of what does that mean to be a champion of transformational change to produce better schools? Well, transformational change starts out with the premise that there's the status quo that presumably people, um, they don't like, but there's an acceptance of it because they don't have a vision for any other alternative. Transformational change requires being able to articulate that vision, but it's it's extremely difficult from a leadership role because it's transformational, and it isn't like, okay, on Monday we're going to do the status quo way, and on Tuesday we're going to do the transformational change. It doesn't work that way. We have to maintain the status quo while we implement uh, putting in place what our transformational change is. But in order to do that first, we have to get buy-in which generally means we have to get buy-in from the public. And so the, so there becomes, which means it, that becomes a, an entirely communications role. You have to know how to articulate your change. You have to speak about it in a way that will become attractive. You have to get people on board, and then you have to just change the whole dynamic uh, of, of the conversation or the issue. And I'll use a national issue as an example in 19... 19- 95, welfare reform was a big issue in the United States. And welfare reform was a very difficult topic for Republicans to talk about because it was so uh, easily... Um, and more widely conservatives, not necessarily in partisan terms, but there was a left-right debate going on. Yes, you could malign conservatives, oh, you don't care for the poor people and you just want them to eat you know, cat food and, and all these things, things were just thrown at conservatives. And the argument was made that no, uh, welfare, the way it's set up is, is, a, is a cultural problem that creates generational poverty and it does not allow people to escape it once they've got in, into it. And, and that won the day. People began to believe that, that, that that's true. Welfare was, was causing generational poverty. It so the problem was being defined yeah, by conservatives that, at that point. That's correct. And that's that. That came on the heels of the 1994 Republican Revolution, where we talked about a lot of issues in that way. And welfare reform was one of the major achievements of that revolution, where, we, where, the, where the majority of the country was convinced. So if you're running in, in a school board and you have a big idea, you, you can't, first of all, as you know, you can't just go in and run, try to run roughshod over the the process, because there is a process of how legislation and, and policy gets passed. And you need to learn that process. You need to respect that process. And while you're learning it, you know, you'll learn how not to get overrun by that process, because you will get overrun by the process if you don't know the rules. So the first part of, of being uh, a responsible legislator is to actually 
learn the parliamentary rules of whatever uh, uh, legislative body you're sitting on, find out how ideas and bills and policy gets implemented. Uh, that's the first thing you're going to have to learn. And the second thing you're going to have to learn is how to articulate your policies in a way that they become attractive to people where people want them, which creates a political movement because politicians will never move if there's no political pressure to move. And the only way to put political pressure on them, them is, is to have the press and their constituents all talking about why aren't you implementing this idea? It's a good idea. We want this idea. And then you slowly learn how to build coalitions and bring people on board. And in some cases, you'll need to let them save face while they come on board. And that's how you get transformational change. Uh, but it starts with a, a big idea. It starts with the dedication to communicating that idea. And it's and it, it, it works itself out when you will give it enough time to learn the rules of the road and, and how legislation actually gets passed. Because if you don't, you'll just have a big idea on a piece of paper and it will never go anywhere. I mean, and that's what, the, that's what the status quo, by the way, is counting on, right? So the whole institutional educational bureaucracy is always waiting for the next school board members to rotate. Oh, they won't be a problem. They'll get tired and they'll go home. Oh, they won't be. They're not going to run for re-election. You know, they, don't worry about it. We'll just, we'll, the building is going to hold tight until this phase passes. And often they're right. And the bureaucracy wins. Um, so you've got to train people into buy into buy-in for transformational change. And every change, every policy has a victim. You know, the left is very good at pointing out who the victims are. We don't often talk about who the victims are, but you know, when, when we have poor education policy, the, the victims, of course, are the children. They're the ones who are, are going to suffer over the long term. And so we can't prioritize the, the administration and the bureaucracy over the children. And those, that's those are the terms we have to think in all the time. Morton Blackwell, president of Leadership Institute, notes in one of his laws of the public policy process that in politics, nothing moves unless it's pushed. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and that, that goes to the heart of just what you were talking about. But you can push effectively or you can push ineffectively. Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, you only get to affect change if you push effectively over a sustained period of time. That's right. And that has to mean more than just being fired up about something for some period of time and then either acting on that or not. Uh, or doing so ineffectively. Um, there is a, there are, and in my experience, there are fewer effective ways to push than there are ineffective ways uh, to push. Uh, you know, and 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 so there are plenty of wrong ways to do it, but you have to learn the right ways to do it to be most effective, uh, because because our system is designed to be resistant to change. That's why we have three branches of the federal government. That's why we have a federalist. Uh, system uh, of uh, federal, state, and, and local. We have three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, whereas in other countries they're combined. Uh, and the, found, uh, the founders divided power at different levels, uh, federal, state, and local, and they divided power um, uh, between different branches on the federal level because they understood that by separating that power and by doing so, making it more difficult to get things done, that was a bulwark against tyranny. And so, therefore, that system, which protects our liberty, also demands that in order for us to make positive, effective change, it takes a sustained commitment. And being right in the sense of having the best ideas is not enough to win, uh, as, no. uh, as Morton Blackwell commonly points out. You may have the best ideas, uh, for improving education, but unless you can learn how to push effectively and over a sustained period of time, the status quo will prevail. 
And I know th- it, it, you're exactly right because our whole system is in a sense a conundrum because we, sometimes we feel, and I, I know the liberals on the left feel the same way. They feel like they have the answer. And if only the whole system would move, everything would be great. And the whole so- system is actually designed to resist that uh, for very good reasons. It's, it's the, the principal reason is so that no tyrant could ever wield it. Um, and so we have built a system that doesn't, doesn't allow uh, the emergence of a king. And so it's very, it can be very frustrating. And so some people are not going to be, um, they're just not going to be cut out for this kind of work because legislation requires you to, first of all, get along with other people, even people that you disagree with. It doesn't. It, it isn't effective to just go in and just be at loggerhorns, and and that's not going to get things done. The way to think, get things done is the way the whole system is built, and none of us want to talk about it. It seems in these days, but unless you're willing to compromise, and that doesn't mean compromise your principles. If you do your communications work, you will win on the arguments. If you go out and convince people that your way is the right way, and then they begin to put pressure on, and the other side, they'll cave. But sometimes you got to give in order to get. And so that's the way the whole system is built. It's not built where one person comes in and we declare that, you know, he's got the best ideas or she has the best ideas. So we're all going with them. And it it's never works that way. And so it all comes down to votes and convincing your fellow school board members to vote in your favor. And that's going to take a lot of communication, a lot of uh, talk, and some, in, in many cases, uh, compromise. As long as you're not compromising all of your agenda, but if you can get a little bit of it. And sometimes small little policy changes um, can make a huge difference, and they prove your point over time, and then you can get the next bite and the next bite. And they, they generate momentum because they, they prove generate they can get momentum. something done. So don't be a purist and say, well, I need to get the whole thing or none of it. You know, get what you can, and then go back and, and get more. And you've got to build a campaign over all your policy ideas and keep going at it and keep talking about it, uh, and the system will move, but you've got to push it. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Theodore Roosevelt, who said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Mm-hmm. That's eminently practical um, advice. When I served on the school board, um, the most effective members of the board were the people who could count to three because we had a five-member board, and unless you could count to three, unless you had three votes, you weren't able to get anything done. Uh, and, uh, and although our board consisted of five conservatives, uh, there was division on the board. Sure. And, uh, and just because a board, by the way, is five liberals or five conservatives or whatever, does not mean there's unanimity because personalities creep in. There's all types of divisions. There's a tendency when looking at a board from a distance to assume that, oh, they're all like or they're all from one side of the political spectrum uh, or not, and therefore they're, you know, they're all in agreement if they're all from the same side. That's very often not, not the case. But you have to be able to count uh, to three, and it's how you can how you can effectively get there uh, that uh, that makes a difference. So if you're going to be the the lone ranger on a school board, there's only so much you're going to be able to do. Um, uh, if you if if someone is on the board and wants to move a policy forward, the first number you have to count to is two. Mm. Because if you can't count to two, then you don't have anyone to second a motion, and then you can't move anything forward. Um, and m- many boards will require at least two votes in order for something to at least get on the agenda, if not three votes, to even consider something. But it takes generally, under Robert's rules, it takes two, um, uh, two members of a board in order to make and second a motion. And then you have to be able to count to three in order to get to a majority or whatever that majority is uh, on the board. And so that means uh, recognizing that politics is 75% relationships and it's 25% everything else. And in order to put your solutions into action requires 
the building of relationships and to be able to move that uh, to move that forward. So we start with those the, that fundamental principle that every student deserves a world-class education. We then move on to the why. Why are you running? What is the answer to that question? Why should people support you? Why do you believe what you believe? Why will that benefit other people? Why should someone else care? And those questions have to be answered in a compelling way. Then we move on to defining what is the problem? What are the problems that are getting in the way of delivering a better quality education in the local schools, not on planet Earth, not in America. No one, there's no American school board. Uh, but specifically, what are the challenges that are being faced in the local schools, the local school district, and then how is your being elected or your solution uh, the answer to solving that problem? And then what are the benefits uh, of that? And then finally, there's the element of understanding uh, how the what the rules of the road are. Um, we have there are so many people who get a, who get uh, fired up about an issue and 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 very often rightly so, but they may be directing their fury in the wrong direction. Uh, it may be, you may be upset about an element of the school curriculum, but that curriculum is mandated by the state, and so the local school board may not have the option uh, to to move forward with that uh, curriculum or not. And therefore, you want to direct fire in the in the right direction, so to speak. Uh, direct your um, activity uh, at, uh, at the right level so that you're affecting change at the level of government uh, and at the point of origin for whatever the, the challenge is. And we go on from there. Rick, what are your closing thoughts as candidates consider filing or they have filed and they look forward to, uh, to a school board election later on this year? I would say to them that if you if you don't like what's going on in your local school board, and you really uh, you can make a difference, and but you got to be committed to it, and like you say, learn learn how you can be uh, most effective, and you know listen listen to Ron's podcast, uh, look at the leadership schools, uh, different schools on, on on how to campaign, and because you got to in order to get on the school board, you, you're first going to have to win, and when you do win. Um, Learn how to be a good legislator. Learn how you can actually uh, get things done because you want to look back at your time on the school board, and, and you want to be proud about what you what you were able to achieve and accomplish um, because you did take the time uh, to learn how to get legislation passed and be an effective legislator. Um, so I would say that, and if you do that, well, God bless you because we need more people and more conservatives to get involved in public life. Or otherwise, we shouldn't expect any other result. This wraps up another episode of the Leadership Institute School Board Campaign Training Podcast. The Leadership Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan foundation dedicated to giving conservatives the tools they need to fight and win in the public policy arena. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a tax-deductible contribution online at leadershipinstitute.org. You can access the entire Leadership Institute School Board Campaign Training Program at leadershipinstitute.org slash schoolboard. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.